0: My goal is always to help people feel empowered and confident to do what makes them happy in life.
1: This is In Her
2: Element, a podcast from BCG. I'm Corinne Lines. And I'm Sujit Srinivasan. Each episode, we have meaningful and vulnerable conversations with women leaders in digital business and technology.
1: This episode, we're speaking with Dr. Beth Wellman, CEO and Director for Science at the LSST Corporation.
2: Beth is a hugely accomplished astronomer. She's worked in academic research and teaching, as well as on huge sky mapping projects. Beth even has a galaxy named after her, the Wellman 1, which she discovered during her first postdoc at NYU. Mentoring and teaching have also been a huge part of Beth's
1: career. So it's fitting that we have our colleague, Adi Zolotov, returning from season one to speak to Beth. Adi was mentored and guided by Beth during her first postdoc. Adi is a partner and associate director at BCG Gamma for data science. She's an expert in high performance computing, machine learning algorithms, and operationalizing data science in service to national security. Her focus is on helping aerospace, defense, and industrial goods
2: companies leverage AI for their most Pressing Problems. We're so grateful to have Beth and Adi join us for this episode. Here's their conversation.
0: So I'm Beth Willman, and I'm currently the CEO and the Director for Science for the LSST Corporation. The LSST Corporation is a nonprofit organization. We're a consortium of a bunch of member institutions that are committed to trying to use philanthropic foundation and private donor fundings to really maximize the scientific and societal impact of the legacy survey of space and time.
3: Amazing. And you and I met many years ago when I was a PhD student. You were a postdoc and were my unofficial slash official PhD advisor. So tell us a little bit about the journey from being a postdoc and then a full-time professor academic to this current role that you're in. Which sounds related, but also quite a bit different.
0: Yes, uh, Adi and I met during my very first postdoc uh, after graduate school at the Center for Cosmology and Particle Physics. So I was on a traditional track, had a PhD in astronomy, doing research uh, using maps of the universe to try to you know understand dark matter and small galaxies around us, and the priority in the values that I had were really you know scientific discovery and, and publishing, and it's very exciting. But after that first postdoc ID when we were starting to work together, it's time, you know, to apply for the grown-up jobs. And of course I was applying for professor jobs at top research universities, because that's what you do. But I had the chance to finally ask myself, how am I choosing to spend my time? Right? I've had these independent fellowships and so I could do research, I could do whatever I wanted with my time. And I realized I was choosing to, you know, work with students. And I was enjoying that a lot. I realized I was choosing to you know, engage with the institutions I was at and try to have a guiding hand in some of the structures that were there that could help people feel more included in in doing science. And so then I moved to a position as a professor at a liberal arts college and you came along with me there. Uh, I had a lot of fun doing some pretty cool research uh, during my first year there. It was so awesome. And, and honestly, indeed, that time where we were doing that work together was really pivotal in helping me stay active and engaged in research as I went to a liberal arts college. So during that time, at, it was Haverford College, and gosh, it was the best time of my life. It was so fun uh, professionally and personally, and I kept really engaged with my research community during that time, but then also like expanded my reach and really focusing on students and mentoring. And you know, after getting tenure and being there for seven years, I felt that I wanted to make a change. I wanted to be able to have more of an impact in this upcoming astrophysics experiment, which I already referred to the Legacy Survey of Space and Time. So I had the opportunity to move from being a professor uh, outside of Philadelphia to moving with my family to Tucson to be the deputy director of the construction project that was building the capability to conduct this, you know, 10 year movie of half of the sky, which would just revolutionize scientific questions. And it was really aligned with my values as a person, as well as as a scientist, because the open data really had the potential to democratize astronomy. And the question though is, will it democratize astronomy, right? So I moved from being a liberal arts college to deputy director of this major construction project. And I I stayed out there for a few years and moved roles a little bit from that specific deputy director role of LSST to then having an executive role in both developing and establishing the first national laboratory for the federal investment in optical infrared astronomy in the United States, which was really, really a thrill and creating the umbrella under which LSST and future experiments like this will be operated. My most recent pivot just came a couple of months ago when, you know, I moved to a different pillar of the LSST ecosystem, right? The federally funded big construction project pillar, the science collaborations pillar, and now the LSSTC nonprofit to help make sure that uh, this amazing experiment really, like I said, impacts science and society as well as it can. When you left your postdoc at NYU,
3: you went to a postdoc at Harvard's Institute of Theory and Computation as an observational astronomer. So a little bit of a fish out of water in that institute, I I think. But we all thought for sure you would be a professor forever. Will you share a little bit about the challenges, the benefits, the scary parts of reinventing yourself so many times, even within one scientific community.
0: I'll say that at no step along the way did I feel scared when I was going into any of these changes. And I think in part that was naivete, but I, I love developing and I, I love implementing and designing change. And so change is, is one of the things that really inspires me professionally. So maybe that gets to some of the, the benefits question. What are the benefits of reinventing myself? I always get to meet new people. I always get to learn new things and have new challenges and grow as a person through getting to tackle different types of professional opportunities. And to the point right now with my new position, one of the things that makes me feel satisfied every day in my new job, is I feel like it truly builds on and benefits from every single thing I've done in my career to this point, including being a professor at a liberal arts college. But, you know, of course, there's been challenges along the way. As you've asked, I just didn't think of those (laughs) before I took each step. You know, one of the challenges has been changing cultures. So, for example, when I switched from being at a liberal arts college to working in a construction project, I didn't think for a second about what it would feel like to work in different professional cultures. I was thinking about things like, oh, well I know enough technical information about telescopes to be in a construction project. But that's sort of the easy stuff. It's really more of the soft skills that tend to matter in in the day to day. So going into a new environment and realizing, oh, unlike Haverford College, not everybody understands or appreciates things like stereotype threat or unconscious bias and the importance of you know, making space in meetings for everybody to contribute. And so those, those cultures change again. And now that I'm in this consortium of different institutions, of both national laboratories, universities, back again close to a bit more of an academic environment, there's of course a whole academic culture around interacting and the way discussions take place and the way you, you reach decisions. Those haven't been barriers, but just some little stumbling blocks uh, that remind me to be mindful of my environment. Did you,
3: during that time or any of these transitions, have mentors and advisors who helped guide you, give you, you know, someone to even just bounce
0: experiences off of and get a different perspective? So I've had a lot of different mentors and advisors in my life, specifically around the transitions that I've had. Not so much, actually. I've had you know, mentors and advisors in each of my roles individually. And it's, you know, part of why it's important to me, it goes all the way back to when I was in in high school. I wouldn't have gotten to do what I've done professionally and be where I am today if there weren't individuals, like I said, going all the way back to my high school AP physics teacher who reached out and supported me and encouraged me in, in different ways. And then doing each of the transitions has just been jumping in, And then finding the person when I land. You also do
3: a lot of mentoring. You're not just a mentee, of course. How do you choose who you
0: mentor? You know, the way I think about mentoring is maybe less structured than some traditional ways that people think about mentoring. So, for example, at different, maybe different universities or in different uh, business in the private sector, there's structured programs that match people with mentors. For me, I see it as my responsibility to mentor anybody who works for me just to start there. So I'm really invested in professional development for my staff. In terms of students, I try to be available to my students as a mentor figure. And again, often it's informal. When I started being a professor and then all the way through my mentoring or advising relationships, whether it's with students or colleagues or staff, my goal is always to help people feel empowered and confident to do what makes them happy in life, right? So like my vision of being a mentor in, at Haverford wasn't everybody needs to learn all this astronomy, <laughs> I mean, of course, I was trying to teach people all this astronomy and help them learn it from each other. But my my, my real goal as a mentor was make people feel empowered to understand themselves and, and what they want to do. And so I don't necessarily, you know, single out individuals and, and choose them for that. There's been occasional folks who I just, who I really wanted to encourage their potential. And I have gone out of my way to say things to them, like, no matter where you are in your life, you can always call me. And those are often individuals that either may not have other mentors or come from a Different background, or folks who just—they sort of have what it takes, and I don't mean by getting like straight A's. They just have that sort of spark in them and that curiosity that I want to encourage.
3: The end of my first year of my PhD, I was going to my first big conference, and somebody had posted a "What women should wear when they go to conference astronomy conferences" blog or email and i remember you sitting down with me and like talking to me about how bs <laughs> that is and and i remember being so nervous about public speaking and so nervous about conferences and one of the most important pieces of feedback you gave me is it doesn't get better unless you just do it over and over and over and over again so just I remember thinking, Beth, if you just give me one more year, I'll become more of an expert and then I can get on a stage and talk about it. Like, just give me three more papers and six more degrees and then I can talk about dark matter halos. And you were like, nope, sorry. You're going to go talk about it now because you already know about it and you already understand it and you already
0: have knowledge to share. I mean, if you feel ready, you've waited too long. is sort of my mantra.
3: Yeah. I don't know if this is a general feeling, but throughout my career, I felt like I can only speak on a subject once I've gained absolute mastery of it. And oh, by the way, my definition of mastery is probably unattainable. (laughs) And I always looked around at my male colleagues and, and felt like, well, they must have gained that mastery because they feel so confident just, you know, raising their hand in a 200 person conference and just giving their opinion
0: I felt the same way earlier in my career. And then my second postdoc at Harvard, uh, people would frequently gather and talk about the newest papers and, you know, ask questions and discuss them. And gosh, those Harvard professors would ask the dumbest questions. But nobody, everybody knew they were brilliant, right? But there wasn't that fear of being embarrassed or saying the wrong thing. And it added to the scientific discourse greatly. And so then I thought, okay, that helped me feel that I could do some of the same.
3: You've got a kid. Yes. How have you found balancing your professional life and goals and and your passion in that space with being a parent and also being a really awesome partner to your partner? Well, my partner's a really
0: awesome partner to me. I don't know. I don't know if I say the reverse. So, look, I'm not going to even pretend. Like, I have work life balance now. I did not have work life balance for the first 10 years of my daughter's life. And at the time, I wanted it like that. I was so fired up about my job and I love my child dearly and I wanted to be with her and I was with her. But my spouse was the primary parent and he declared that he would be the primary parent and he's the one that took her to doctor's appointments and would you know make sure she was picked up from school and, and all these different things. And I would travel a lot for work and that's what made me satisfied at the time. And <laughs> I can remember you know, we all go through different periods and I, I was like, oh gosh, I need, I need a coach or I need a, a therapist or something. And, you know, you talk to somebody and they're trying to figure out like, oh, how can I help you? And inevitably they say, well, are you happy with your work-life balance? Like I can help you with that. And I'm like, oh no, I'm good with this. <laughs> I'm actually fine with my lack of work-life balance. I don't want to talk about, that. I don't want to do yoga. But within the last few years, you know, we moved from Tucson to, to Wilmington, Delaware for personal reasons and it's a, it's a different phase of my life. And I am so glad my life isn't like that anymore. And this feels right for me now. And I don't regret the choices I made earlier because it was a fit for me. And I'm so much better at teenagers than I am at little kids as well. So I get to hand off a little bit um, between me and my spouse with our where our strengths are.
3: In the lead up to that, you are talking about It sounded like there was a moment where burnout, the way you described it, I'm sure it wasn't this way, almost kind of turned on. Like before you were good, just powering on work, right? Super focused there. And all of a sudden there was some, some moment or moments where you needed it to be a little bit less intense, maybe a little bit less time consuming. Can you tell me a little bit about that transition and
0: burnout? So... Several things happened at the same time. So one was, again, we moved to Delaware for personal reasons. And I was able to keep my big girl job as deputy director of the National Lab for a little while when we made that move. So that was great. And I thought, oh, you know, I'm good at my job. We'll move to Delaware. I'll figure it out. I'll come out here. And so once we moved, a few things happened. One was I was really hit hard. I hadn't appreciated how used to it how accustomed I had become to everything being about me and my job. We didn't move here for me and my job, and when we met new people, and we didn't hang out with astronomers anymore, and it, you know it wasn't about me. And it was really sobering realization how kind of self-centered I had been in some ways, and it was a really uncomfortable feeling, and I wanted to change that. At the same time, you know, COVID happens, and I can work from home for real. I can keep doing my big girl job in Tucson from Delaware, which was amazing. And working from home also means that I can spend more time with my daughter, which was really amazing. And I was burned out on the job that I had and I got a Beagle, who's amazing. So all of those things happened at once and it just really made me see that I wanted to make a change in my life. And spending more time with my daughter, spending more time with my family, not being so work obsessed and instead reminding myself of, of what I care about and getting out of my own head, all, all, happened, all happened at the same time. And the work burnout, I tried all sorts of things to get over it. Uh, vacation, this and that. I stepped up to take on a new role in my organization, but I really needed a big change. And so changing into the job I have now has just, it shocked my system and got me out of that burnout.
3: I love that because... As humans, we just have so much capacity for change and we're so bad at forecasting that and forecasting our needs and who we will be and and where we will want to be, right? You're just in that moment. You're like, I'm sure that forever I'm going to be this hard charging, 100 hour
0: a week person and then change creeps in. I had to really change inside like what my definition of success looked like in order to be make some of the changes so you know when i pivoted to be the in the role that i have now you know some of the advice i received from people who are you know very accomplished and i respect a lot was just oh beth i thought you were really going to make something of yourself as in not go the direction i chose go this other direction like oh i thought you were going to really have a real impact on an international level you know and i had just gotten to the place where i said that's okay that's not my definition of success anymore
3: yeah, it's really hard not to internalize that from your parents, from your colleagues. <laughs> yeah, that's wicked hard. Thank you so much for spending time with us. We end every episode by asking our guest to tell us about a time when she felt in her element. Can you tell us
0: about a time, Beth, when you felt in your element? Oh, there's just so many times. There's so many memories. I'll I'll just go to one that was quite recent when I was having a wonderful day and feeling in my element. It was a month ago, I was in Arizona, and it was at a board meeting for the LSST Corporation. And it was the first face-to-face in a while. There was a lot of good creative energy going around. Lots of brainstorming. Everybody was showing how we had a mutual commitment to expanding the community who could do science and engage with uh, this amazing astrophysics experiment. And one afternoon I'm sitting outside, and you see the mountains and it's sunny and it's beautiful and the perfect temperature. And I'm with two of my two of my female colleagues. And we were all three just so fired up about what we could do together. How could we use uh, different resources to keep trying to pave the way towards a new normal of inclusive discovery and in astrophysics? And we we're probably having a glass of wine. And it was just so fun. We were all vibing on the same wavelength and being creative. So I was definitely in my element that day.
2: That was Adi's conversation with Beth Wilman. Sushi, what were some of your key takeaways from this conversation? As she grew more successful and became more senior, you know, just how she executes her work, how she works with teams, what does that mean for her and how she defines her forward-looking view of success. I just found her to be very thoughtful in how she reflected on those. And it's true that as women climb to positions of greater empowerment and responsibility, you have to also reinvent your playbook, your mental mindset for how you're engaging with around others around you, your engagement with teams and your own personal definition of success. I think there's a lot of sort of food for reflection over there.
1: Connected to what you were talking about was when she was saying, you know, it's not always like the best in the class or the top of the class or the person that she's kind of trying to mentor or take to the next level. She's like, sometimes it's not the person that's really saying much at all that she tries to like engage with them or, you know, try to help them move into the next phase. So she is, as you said, a very thoughtful leader. She's very like tuned in and maybe
2: intuitive. Well, That's all for today. This has been In Her Element, a podcast from BCG. Join us every episode to hear meaningful conversations with
1: women leaders in digital, business, and technology.